I don't think there are too many sensations better than being refreshed by water. When you are thirsty, your mouth is parched, suffering from dehydration, maybe you're out working in the sun, exercising, whatever it might be, and you got that dry cotton mouth sensation, and that glass of cold water, the ice chinking around, water hits your lips, splashes on your tongue, sensation is hard to beat, is it not? And it's said that you never truly appreciate what you have until it's gone. And I, for one, will admit that I take water for granted. Like perhaps all of you, I have indoor plumbing, running drinkable water at the turn of a faucet. And in all my years of living in Connecticut, I've never been uh, hampered by a severe enough drought uh, that it changes my day-to-day usage of water. Never really been concerned about where I am going to get a glass of water. But the same cannot be said for others in this country or around the world. Whether we're talking about easy access to clean water or simply having enough water for drinking, cooking, cleaning, staying healthy, growing crops, I have been blessed with an abundance of life-sustaining water where many have lack and need. The same can be said, spiritually speaking. We live in a time and place where we have a plethora of resources available to us in the English language that can help us love and obey God each and every day. English Bibles galore are available to us, and many of them inexpensive. And yet, for all this access to the wells of salvation, how little do I go and take a sip of God's Word, while countless others around the world thirst and long for a page a book, a testament of God's word in their tongue. Am I suffering from a spiritual drought? Are we as a church, is the PCA as a denomination, or is the United States as a country even, going through a spiritual drought thanks to sin or negligence? And do we even realize it if we are? Hopefully we will find some answers to these questions as we look at our passage today, 1 Kings chapter 17. Because what I want to see from these uh, first 16 verses is three things. First, how we might provoke a spiritual drought. Secondly, how to remedy a spiritual drought. And then thirdly, how can we anticipate an abundant life even in a drought? 
Those three things from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. And as I often do, I invite you to either follow along in your your copy of God's Word or to listen attentively to the reading of God's life-giving Word. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened, after a while, that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this fantastic account of your power, of your wisdom, of your grace and mercy, even your justice and your judgment upon sinful people. Lord, help us to grow excited in the narrative here. For in it we see the foreshadowing of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Show us, reveal him to us this day. And again, may our hearts grow warm in our adoration for him. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So first, how do we provoke spiritual droughts? 
Well, we've seen already in the life of Ahab, one way that we can provoke spiritual drought is through outright sin. Ahab being the ringleader of the wicked kings of Israel, leading God's people astray into idol worship, and thus bringing upon himself, his kingdom, and those uh, under him, the wrath and judgment of God. There is going to be a drought, a physical, no rain, no dew, lack of crops and water. We also see here in this passage, as we move forward, another way that we provoke spiritual drought is by not heeding the corrective aspects of God's word. Ahab, yes, should have known the law of God not to make an idol, not to erect a a, a false god in place of the Lord. But when Elijah comes and speaks out against the evil the king is doing, Ahab doesn't repent. And in his lack of repentance, he provokes the Lord to afflict his soul with spiritual dryness. Now it's said that dehydration can hit a person and they don't even realize it. I don't feel thirsty. Uh, I don't feel overheated. I'm not sweating. I feel all right. Uh, Therefore, no thank you. Uh, I don't need a glass of water or anything to drink. And we go about our day dangerously neglecting the thirst we're not aware of. I wonder if that was true of Ahab. Did he realize that he had a spiritual thirst for God's living word? I suspect he did not. I suspect he was more consumed with the physical drought that was raging around him. He was not even aware that the word of God embodied in the person of Elijah as the Lord's representative here had been sent out of the country. Look at verse 3. The Lord came to him and said, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Simply put, if a people will not heed God's words of warning, of promise, or correction, then that word will be sent to those who will. Does this sound familiar? Of course. The passage we read earlier in Matthew chapter 21. If God's covenant people even would rather he leave than to repent of their sins and obey. If a people, a denomination, a church, a country, whoever it might be, Push God out to make room for gods that cannot save, cannot deliver from death, cannot deliver on any promises. Then the kingdom will come to a people producing its fruit. Provoking spiritual drought carries absolutely deadly consequences in its wake. Now at this point, let me just say, I'm not talking about believers losing their salvation. Those whom God has justified and forgiven of their sins will not lose their salvation. We believe that, and rightfully so. The work that God has begun in his people 
he is faithful to bring to completion for his glory. But nevertheless, we can still experience seasons of dryness, seasons of thirst as consequences for neglecting the water of God's word, both in its intake and also its practice. We can provoke these seasons where God shuts up his heavens spiritually through outright sin, as well as by failing to heed God's corrective word to us in repentance. When we sin, we are in effect saying that this, whatever this is, quenches my thirst better than the God who redeems souls. And again, if this is what we want, if this is what a person wants, if this is what a person says often enough, then you just might get it. God may leave us in a period of of spiritual drought for a time. Elijah setting foot to the east of the Jordan outside of Israel's banks was the first alarm of their spiritual drought. But allow me to go one step further for our cultural context. Because, again, I, I think we can feel that we're okay in our day and age. We don't bow down to statues. We don't have to worry about that, Mark. We resist all these other religions and their false gods, Mark. We don't have to worry about that. And we can even have a sort of spiritual pride and arrogance. Mark, we we live in, uh, you said it before, we've got such a a variety, uh, a wealth of spiritual knowledge and resources that we can pull ourselves out of spiritual drought. I I just don't know if we'll fall into a spiritual drought because of all the resources we have. I mean, Mark, we're reformed. We're in the PCA. We're in a church that has been in existence faithfully for decades upon decades. We've got the five points of Calvinism, Mark. How can we fall into a spiritual drought? My friends, let us be careful of such spiritual arrogance. That can cause a spiritual drought as well. We may think that we have the market cornered in Christianity on all things theology, but those spiritual monopolies never end well. We can have our systematics, we can have our creeds and our confessions, and those are all good things. I'm not saying we get rid of them. But we can have all those things and still have silence from the Word of God. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, you can have the Bible in your hand and suffer the absence of God's Word. (laughs) You may own a dozen translations and use several of the 58 study Bibles marketed for multiple evangelical cliques and yet find that for all its availability, the word of the Lord has withdrawn from you. It's a scary affair, more so if you're not even aware of it. If you are suffering from spiritual drought, pray that the Lord shows it to you, that you feel that thirst, that you feel that dehydration. Let us beware of provoking such spiritual drought through outright sin or through spiritual pride and arrogance. But what if you find yourself in a a spiritual drought? 
What if you've made the mistake of provoking one in your life? Or maybe like Elijah and the widow here, you're feeling the effects of a spiritual drought that may not have necessarily been your fault per se. What do you do? What can you do? Well, this is our second point. How to remedy a spiritual drought. The simple answer is to repent. To repent, to return to the Lord as we've been hearing in Sunday school in the Minor Prophets all this whole time. To be where the Lord is, where his presence may be found. Return to the wells of living water as Isaac did in the book of Genesis. This is signified by the preaching and the practice of God's word. And I don't mean just preaching on a Sunday morning what I do to you. I mean the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel that you do to yourself when you read the scriptures. When you feel the conviction of your sin and you flee to Christ, you fly to the throne of grace and you hear those comforting gospel words, Jesus Christ receives sinners. Make use of the means of grace that God has prescribed for such times. The word, the prayer, the sacraments, if you can, fasting, service, fellowship, corporate worship. Meditating upon God's word, hiding it in your heart. In other words, humble faith as evidenced by humble obedience. And what is astonishing in this Section in this passage is how paradoxical this remedy is. Because the more that Elijah and the widow obey, the less they seem to have. But the less they have in their hands, the more they actually gain in their lives. Let's take a look. First, Elijah goes to the brook Cherith. He's fed by ravens twice a day. Day and night they bring him bread and meat. Do not ask what that meat consists of. I'm not quite sure any of us want to know the type of meat a bird would bring to you. Nevertheless, Elijah was taken care of. However, after a while, the author reports to us that the brook started to dry up because there was no rain in the land. Well, of course. Thanks for stating the obvious. But the question is, couldn't God have stop that from happening? Didn't God know that was going to happen? Couldn't he have supernaturally kept that brook running for Elijah? Well, of course. That's not even a question. But the brook needs to dry up in order for the abundant life to come flooding through for God's prophet. Charles Spurgeon says this, the Christian grows rich in his losses. He lives by dying, and he becomes full by being emptied. Imagine that. Elijah, by the brook day by day, when he first arrives, there seems like there's enough water to last him for many days. However, as the days without rain start to stretch into weeks without rain, the water's edge creeps further and further away from the prophet. More of the stream bed is seen. And whereas on day one he had cupfuls of water at his disposal, now he only has a spoonful of a trickle to quench his thirst, and it doesn't work. Maybe he gets anxious. 
Maybe he gets worried. Maybe he thinks, I'm going to die of thirst here. What should I do? Should I, should I leave? Should I go look for other supplies of water? But where is he going to go? The whole land is experiencing a drought. And the one who supplied him this water has not told Elijah to leave. Elijah must trust in God rather than in the blessings of God. Elijah's abundant blessing comes in his decreasing water supply. Because that means an increase in his faith in the God who lives. This is meant for our instruction. Because we can make an idol out of God Almighty when we seek Him out or go to His Word only for what we can get out of it instead of satisfying our souls in Christ Himself. We need to be satisfied in the beauty of Christ, in the honoring of Christ, in the lifting up and the worshiping of His name above all else. And therefore, even good things in our life may need to be stripped away in order for us to rest with contentment in the giver rather than in what is given. I think it was A.W. Pink who said this. If not, I apologize. (laughs) Instead of a river, God often gives us a brook which may be running today and dried up tomorrow. Why? To teach us not to rest in our blessings, but in the blesser himself. This, again, is an amazing paradox. By the grace of God, we are persuaded and enabled to let go of what we have, even to let go of what we desire, in order that we would find that pearl of great price, as Jesus speaks of. And the widow of Zarephath, is about to experience the same flood of abundant blessing because the presence of the word of God in the form of Elijah comes to her house. Elijah comes to the city gate, as God commanded him to do, and he sees the widow gathering some sticks. He asks her for water. And she, astonishingly, agrees to give him water. This is amazing because water at this point is a precious commodity. And yet she's willing to empty herself for the sake of this stranger, this foreigner. Does this put us to shame? When God has so richly blessed us, whether it's physically or spiritually, and we hoard those blessings like misers, we are not willing to let them go, to bless another. This widow has, unbeknownst to herself, received a prophet, and she is about to receive a prophet's reward. But before that, we see the testing and the struggle of her faith. Because Elijah asks for a bite to eat, and at that word, she breaks down and reveals her heart-wrenching circumstance. I don't have anything. Got a little bit of flour a little bit of oil in these sticks for fuel. I was about to go in and cook a last meal for me and my son. We were going to eat it and then wait to die. But here's where we transition to our third point. 
How can we anticipate an abundant life, even in a drought? And I hope I can do justice to the picture of the gospel here because it is absolutely glorious. This widow sees her need and she knows full well her inability to meet that need. She understands that death is at her door and she is powerless to bar its entry. She can do nothing to stop the inevitable from coming to her and her son. But God, probably the two sweetest words in any language, in all of Scripture, at the eleventh hour, in the darkness, when all hope is lost, but God. The word of God comes with a completely different narrative, a wonderfully abundant word of hope that runs contrary to the widow's physical senses and her reasoning. She feels her frailty. She knows her inability to help herself. She cannot prolong her life. She cannot save her son. She has kissed the grief of the grave. She hungers. She thirsts. There is no hope for her in herself or even around her. But God, out of nowhere, outside of the widow, comes with a tantalizing and yet almost offensive word to her. Elijah tells her, do not fear. What? Are you kidding me? Do not fear? How can you say that? How can I do anything but fear? This life, all I have, all I've known, my identity, everything I've worked for is about to be ripped from me and then what will I have? And yet you tell me do not fear? How dare you? Who do you think you are? You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through, what I've been through. Do not fear? But Elijah doesn't stop there. He continues with an absolutely absurd statement. Do not fear because the flour and the oil are not going to run out. Anyone who's been in the kitchen, who's done any amount of cooking, understands that if you take a scoop of flour from the bag, you have less flour in the bag than when you started. And if you keep taking scoops out, eventually that bag runs dry. It'll be empty. Even in the best of economies, our pantries need constant restocking. But here, amongst death in a cemetery... You're going to spread an everlasting feast? Are you kidding me? We've heard this before. Can God really furnish a table in the wilderness? Can these bones live? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But this is the opportunity of a lifetime. If it is true. 
The Word of God comes with a promise that seems too good to be true. But when we believe, in spite of the doubts and the uncertainties on our part, God for certain makes good on His part. Because He absolutely blesses us in Christ with an inheritance that never runs dry. The question is, will the widow believe it? Can she take her eyes off her circumstances and everything that points to the contrary long enough for her to look with eyes of faith upon this promise that comes from the God who lives? The answer is yes. And the show of that faith is in her obedience to Elijah's command. She goes and makes and brings him a cake first, and then the promise of God rains down upon her. Now, she doesn't earn that blessing of God, the daily supply of flour and oil by giving to the Lord. She is simply taking God at His word. God made the promise, and she said, Amen. Yes, Lord, I believe. Because of her own strength, she had scant provisions for her and her son. But by grace through faith, her household, verse 15 and 16, she and he and her household ate for many days according to the word of the Lord. Faith, as one commentator says, is staking everything upon Yahweh's sheer word, wagering all upon the veracity of God. The widow showed she was willing to do just that. Will you? Will I? Now, in closing, I don't want you to go away from here thinking that your cupboards are never going to be empty, that your checkbook is never going to fall into the negatives or anything like that. This passage isn't a template uh, for each and every individual Christian to identify with Elijah or the widow and then think that the Bisquick's going to uh, refill itself supernaturally in the morning or the Benjamins are going to stack up in our bank account or anything. That's not the purpose of this passage. Because it isn't merely flour and oil that Jesus came to offer us. He said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. This is my blood of the eternal covenant shed for you. This is the abundant, flooding, eternal life Jesus comes to give us. Knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And as we abide in him, like vines, or as branches in a vine, it is impossible not to flourish, not to have life when we are connected to Him who is life. So feel your soul's thirst and return to Christ. Because where the Word of God goes, there is abundant life. Let us pray.